How about a little Ezra right here? Ezra chapter 4. Ezra chapter 4 as you're turning. Uh, I'll say thank you to Radley for leading us in communion last week. Uh, if you missed it, you missed a blessed time. Ezra chapter 4. We're not going to finish this this week. We've been going at a pretty good clip in the book of Ezra, usually a chapter or so at a time. And uh, we've had a couple breaks here and there. Uh, this morning we're just going to look at the first three verses of Ezra 4. And like I said, we're not going to finish this today. There are, uh, there are ex- an extraordinary number of timely implications to this passage. Uh, I, throughout the week, was continually overwhelmed by how relevant this passage is for our day. There are many uh, needed applications that we need to jump into before leaving just these first three verses of chapter 4, and we're going to do that. So we're going to spend a couple more weeks in relation to this passage. We're not going to spend it in this passage directly, but we're going to go New Testament. We're going to go to some other places, Old Testament, in the next couple weeks because I want to expand on the implications and the applications of three, these three verses. But today, um, we, need to, uh, well, we need to focus on the text at hand itself. And we need to get the story behind the applications and uh, understand what the immediate implications of these verses are so that we, in the coming Sundays, will be able to uh, correctly and appropriately draw some principles and some applications. Okay, So just hang in there with me this morning. We're going we're gonna to track through these three verses. We're going to catch you up on the story of Ezra, what the narrator has for us to understand uh, about the, the Israelites and their their post-captivity life, and then we're going to jump into some more applicative things uh, in the next couple weeks. The point of the passage is made frequently, as I said, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, so we're going to, we're going to be in Ezekiel, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians in the next couple weeks, so just hang on. This, is, this today is a foundation for the next couple weeks worth of application and implications. And let me just say, not because, uh, not because I'm going to be saying it, but because of what the Word has here, you're not going to want to miss these next couple weeks. Again, uh, an extraordinary amount of timely implications in these three verses. Your theme that God is faithful to his eternal plan. It cannot be thwarted. If he has to use evil, he will use evil, but his eternal plan will take place. He will fulfill his promises to his people. He will never drop the ball. He will fulfill his plan in his own timing, not according to the time of Israel, in our day, not according to our time, but he will fulfill his plan. The the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God is a major theme that you're going to see throughout the book of Ezra and into Nehemiah. Chapter 1, we saw that very clearly. That as Cyrus, this pagan king, decided not just by a whim to let the Israelites go back and rebuild the, the temple of their God, we find out from the narrator that this is, this is God working behind the scenes to make all this happen according to the promises that he made way back when he told Jeremiah that I'm sending these guys out, I'm going to let them be carried off into the land, but there will be a time when I bring them back. And so God brings it all back together and he uses an evil king and he makes it happen. That's the theme of chapter 1. Chapter 2, we saw not just the faithfulness of God, but we saw really the unfaithfulness of humanity as a whole in that in the list of chapter 2, we saw that there was a small percentage of Jews who actually 
who actually went through the open door that God provided through King Cyrus to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their life, their identity as God's chosen people. Only, only a small percentage of them went back, and we talked about how they were content in their captivity. It's this, this peace that is crucial to the temple, although it is separate from the temple, and you have to pass the altar to make it into the temple. And we talked about the altar. We talked about how Israel became orthodox in chapter 3. They became orthodox in the truest sense of the term. Uh, you're familiar with the term orthodontics. I told you this before. What does an orthodontist do? He's the guy who straightens up your teeth. When they're all jacked up, the orthodontist goes in there and he aligns them. Orthodoxy in Christianity means that According to Scripture, according to God's commands, according to God's rules, according to what He wants, we line up. We become orthodox. And in chapter 3, we saw that the remnant, this, this small percentage of Jews who made it through captivity and the small percentage of Jews who were actually born in captivity, they come back and they say, you know what, we're going back to basics. We're going to be orthodox. We're going to start where we need to start. We're going to do it just like God said. We're going to go get the wood where God says. We're going to go get the gold where God says. We're going to do it just like he said. Why? Because they remember. We were in captivity. Some of us were born in captivity because our fathers got off track. They did it their own way. They did what was right in their own eyes, and they paid for it. saw that uh, the nation as it was at the time, had gathered now at the very foundation of the temple. They just had the foundation laid. That's it. Just the foundation. No walls, no windows, no steps, nothing. Just the foundation and then the altar out in front. And they stop to celebrate. They stop to celebrate just the fact that they have a glimpse of God fulfilling His promise, that this thing is happening and it's coming true. At the end of chapter 3, we saw that some of the old guys were weeping in their praise perhaps because the temple, they realize, is not ever going to be what it was. And maybe there's some guilt there. Maybe there's some humility there that they were part of the problem that sent them into exile and that saw the old temple destroyed. And they wept probably in humility, probably regret in their sin, but also with the hope of what is now to be. That God has fulfilled His promise, that He's kept them that he's kept for himself a remnant of Israel to rebuild, to fulfill his promises. He also saw that there was this, this younger generation that saw the hope of what could be that they had never experienced before. They saw the very foundation of it. The end of chapter 3, it says that as they celebrated, some crying, weeping, some shouting for joy, at just the temple foundation, everyone around could hear what was going on, and they, they really couldn't determine whether it was weeping or crying, but they just heard the rumbling. Something is going on in Jerusalem. The people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we are like you. Seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. 
Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask that you would help us to see this historical account, this, this commentary on history through Ezra. I pray that we would see everything that our hearts need to see. Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you give us clarity where we need clarity? As always, Lord, we pray that where our lives differ from the principles in your word, we commit to changing. We commit to shaping our life, wrapping our life around truth, conforming our life. And uh, next scene, curtain comes up, and you have, you have those people. You have those people who, who had heard and who are seeing. And now they step up. And essentially, help arrives for the nation of Israel, right? Help arrives. In verse 2, it says, They approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the households and said to them, Let us build with you. Sounds good, right? Sounds like good news. Right on. I mean, there was only a small percentage of Jews who came back, and this is a major undertaking. Realize, there is no Lowe's, there is no Home Depot, there are no power tools, okay? I mean, there's no big box of nails that you just go and pick up. This is, a, this is a huge undertaking. It's not build a house in three months. There are no nail guns, okay? You get the picture here? This is a huge undertaking. Help? Let's consider this. You want to help, okay? You may have been surprised, as I was, at least on the surface, to see in verse 3 that this help was rejected out of hand. Did that, did that surprise you? I mean, it, it surprised me as I, as I first read, at least on the surface. I mean, here are the inhabitants of the land, the people who are already living there, and we've moved in, and we're going to start rebuilding this temple. It's a, it's a huge undertaking, and we've got some people coming out of the woodwork who have heard us in our praise and in our celebration just as the foundation is done, and their author, Ezra, the narrator here, the storyteller, he doesn't go into telling us that the heads of the household, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, they gather together and they put their heads together and they thought out, what should we do here? Should we accept this help? Should we not? Interesting here that how we receive this account, how we receive the story, is that there is no discussion. Perhaps there was, but by divine inspiration, what we get is a flat-out no thanks. Don't miss that. And it sounds at least to me, uh, just it, on the surface, it sounds at least a little arrogant, right? It sounds at least a little separatist, a little, little like an exclusivist. If nothing else, it's, it's just a little bit narrow-minded on the part of the Jews, right? It had to be tempting for at least two reasons. One, I already mentioned, the workload itself. It had to be tempting for the nation to say, come on, the more the merrier. Laborers, come on. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing that we're doing. It's a positive undertaking. Why not let everybody come and be a part? The workload itself had to be a temptation for the leadership. Not just that, but you've got to believe that uh, as, it's tempting, right? It's tempting. So why the stone wall? Why the stone wall? Well, the text gives us a hint in verse 1. The author, the narrator, the storyteller gives us a hint. He gives us a little extra commentary 
in verse 1. Did you notice it? Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin... Incidentally, he only mentions Judah and Benjamin here because the other ten tribes are essentially lost in the exile. The majority of the northern tribes of Israel are gone. The remnant is a majority of Judah and Benjamin. That says something about their needs. But Ezra chooses an interesting word here to call this group who had heard in chapter 3, who had heard the rumblings around the foundation, who have now approached the leadership, he calls them enemies. Now you've got to know that that is a note from Ezra. That is a commentary from the writer. It is a divine commentary for us. Uh, you've got to believe that the people on the ground, Zerubbabel, the leadership, the heads of the households, don't quite understand at this point that these people are enemies in time and space on the ground. Right? We get an interesting note here from Ezra. We get a hint, a clue, that, that these guys aren't... Well, it always tells on the tree. We saw this back in Titus when we went through Titus. That for those who aren't righteous, their, their life always tells on their religion. Right? Their life always tells on their religion. The fruit always tells on the tree. So later on in the chapter, we find out in context that these guys really weren't there with the best of intentions. So Ezra says, don't be fooled. These guys were enemies from the start. Don't be surprised when they're rejected from the start. So why the stone wall? Well, Ezra tells us they were enemies. Context tells us that that they were not, that they did not have the best interests for the nation of Israel in mind. In fact, after this attempt to join with Israel, their next attempt is not so cordial it is to be on the all-out attack against Israel. More on that in a moment. Let's ask another question here. Who are these would-be partners? I mean, you've got to be asking yourself, who are these enemies that Ezra would have us know are not allies? Who are they? Well, as we've seen in verse 1, they are enemies. Uh, Also, in chapter 3, verse 13, we realize... That them, that's Yahweh, since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. So they tell Israel exactly who they are. They say, we are, in a sense, just like you. We were exiles into Assyria, into their kingdom. And you remember back uh, around the first message, before we even got into Ezra, I gave you some historical background on how Assyria worked and how Persia worked. The Assyrians liked to take conquered peoples and spread them and very literally breed them out of their own identity, breed them, own of the, breed them out excuse me, of their own culture, of their own nationality, so that when they would separate them, they'd send some here, some there, and they'd take another people group, and they'd send them here and then there, and they would cause them to intermarry, they would live their lives, and now you don't have the uniqueness of the individual cultures, you have, you have this conglomeration, you have this, this enmeshing of cultures, With that, the enmeshing of all their religions. And so you get this this hodgepodge. You get this melting pot of culture, religion, etc. They are, in fact, uh, 
Old Testament Samaritans. History tells us, we find in Kings and in Chronicles, that the Assyrians send groups of people directly to this location, Pharisees and Sadducees. We get Samaritans. Samaritans were despised in the New Testament because they were a mixed breed, if you will. They were no longer pure. There was an impurity in their culture. There was an impurity in their nationality. There was an impurity in their new religious practices. They were tainted. They were corrupt. In the truest sense of the word, they were contaminated nationally, culturally, and as a result, spiritually. And that's the key here. Don't lose that. All right. That's who they are. What danger do they pose? What danger do these Old Testament Samaritans pose? The danger, I would tell you, is two things. It is subtle and it is significant. The danger is both subtle and significant. First, let's talk about how it's subtle. Verse 1, Ezra calls them enemies, but remember, those on the ground, Zerubbabel, uh, these men didn't come with sign painted, they were corrupt, but somewhere down the line, they were they were Israel. The danger's subtle for these returning Jews. Not only, excuse me, they are not on the attack we see as well. They are not on the attack. Verse 2 says, Let us build with you, for we, well, we're just like you. And we seek your God. As a matter of fact, we've been sacrificing to your God since the day we got put here ourselves. You see, they're not on the attack. It's a, it's a subtle danger that Israel faces here. You've heard the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Right? It's really the opposite here. The tactic of this group, frankly, the tactic of Satan, the choice tactic of Satan, is not to try and beat them first. It's to join them first. If that doesn't work, then we'll attack. You follow me? This is true throughout the Old Testament. It was true with Adam and Eve. That Satan went to Eve and said, let's see if I can, if I can get on the inside. Let's see if I can get in Eve's mind, corrupt her thinking, taint her thinking, and let her mess everything up. And Adam. It was to, in a sense, join with him, create an allegiance Listen, Jesus, we can have all this if you would just compromise this. Look at what we could do together. And you remember Jesus rejects it out of hand. He says, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And what does Satan do then? Then he attacks. See, the danger here for Israel is not blatant. It's not outright. It is subtle. Hey, you know, we're, we're just like you. We worship your God in fact, we've been worshiping your God here in this place while you guys were gone. Why don't you let us help? Why don't you let us help? It's subtle. The danger is subtle. 
That is often the case. Their offer comes in compelling and even sometimes religious language. You have to be careful when danger like this approaches. Um, When you speak in religious terms, you have to be very clear in defining the terms. False religions, false doctrines often use similar terms. But the truth is they redefine the terms to fit their own needs, to fit their own you. What they leave out is what Kings and Chronicles tells us is that it was, yes, Yahweh, but it was Yahweh plus. You see, their idea was not just to worship Yahweh, but they conveniently left that part out. Their idea was to worship any God that would bring them blessing. See, gods in that day were, were often uh, geographical. So if you, were in, if you were placed in a new place, then you paid homage to that god. Whether it were for a blessing upon your crops or a blessing upon your family, blessing upon your business, this, this, wasn't, this wasn't an allegiance to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. They conveniently left that part out. It's a subtle danger that Israel faces here. It's a subtle danger. Uh, Back when I was in seminary, I used to uh, do some tutoring. And I did some tutoring uh, not just for uh, regular classes, but I did SAT training and SAT uh, prep and test prep. And essentially, you would you would go in and you'd sit down with a high schooler and you would help them to understand how to approach the test. I didn't I didn't I couldn't help them necessarily on the content of the SAT or the standardized testing. But we talked a lot about the test itself and how to approach the test. Some some sort of inside stuff. Like statistically, if it's a multiple choice and you don't know what the answer is and you're going to guess, statistics say that the answer is most likely B or C. Don't choose A or D. The answers are typically B or C. So if you've got to choose, choose the that I've uh, spoke with on this, we don't initially get it. But a true-false question goes something like this. There's a statement, and the, the test giver wants to know, is this statement true, absolutely, or is it false? Is it true, or is it false? Now, the trick is that a lot of times they'll put a whole lot of true stuff in there, and they'll throw in this one little random false item. You know what I'm talking about? And what, we, what I found that many students didn't understand is that the overwhelming truth didn't completely overwhelm that one false portion. In fact, in a true and false question, if there's anything, no matter how small, if there's anything false in the statement, then the answer is false. Now, you know where I'm going with this. The danger was subtle. The language compelling. Nothing overt, nothing blatant. By all appearances, it just seemed like they were trying to help. Any mixing, any tainting, any little bit of contaminant contaminates the whole thing. If one portion of lie gets a harmonious and meshed culture, can't we get rid of everything that would... uh, differentiate us for the sake of bringing peace to the whole. And that's how it works, right? Have you seen this before? Do we see this today? That we try and get rid of all the distinctions in hopes that it brings peace. 
so that there's no rub. So that there's no rub. So what is the danger? The danger is what you might call amalgamation, a religious melting pot of sorts. A religious melting pot. We call it syncretism in theological circles. It's a theology of tolerance that allows a blending. You get in this picture? Uh, it's been said that religions that religions should coexist like the beautiful colors of a rainbow lay side by side and form this, this beautiful image. And the truth is that it doesn't work that way. The truth is that the colors end up the colors end up mixing. And what you get is not this beautiful this beautiful uniqueness brought together. You get you get a muddy mess is what you get. You get a dark, ugly feeling to throw out all that stuff, then you can on some level live in enough harmony to where nobody rubs anybody the wrong way. Amen? Christianity has too many absolutes for that. Christianity has too many absolutes to be blended away. Too many, well, we have too many exclusive claims for that to work. It's, it's impossible. There's too many, too many statements like, I am the only way. There are too many statements serve no other gods. In fact, those gods aren't even real, Paul would say. There's too many absolutes in Christianity for that type of syncretism, that kind of blending, that kind of tainting. We can't do it. We can't do it unless we're willing to get rid of what might just be important. And some are. Some are willing. So the danger is subtle. But mind you, the danger is significant. The danger is significant. Let me read to you what C.S. Lewis wrote. C.S. Lewis wrote a small book called uh, The Screwtape Letters. It was a compilation of fictional letters between... He assures Wormwood that, quote, listen to this now, a moderate religion is as good for us, meaning Satan, as no religion at all. Did you catch that? A moderate religion, he says, is just as good for us as if they had no religion at all. Moderate in the sense of not one extreme or the other. Let's, let's dumb it down enough. Let's taint it enough. Let's cut it enough. Let's dilute it enough so that it's moderate. It's of real, no real worth. has no viscera. He understands that the restrained Christianity full of ideas and talk but demonstrating little change was a contradiction in terms. Theological compromise and acquiescence to social pressure undercut and destroy the essence of faith. C.S. Lewis said they render it a parody. Later on in the dialogue, Screwtape says this, The safest road, you know, the safest road to hell, Wormwood, is the gradual one. The gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without millstones, and without signposts. There is, 
a danger. It is often and intentionally subtle. Mind you, it is significant. We both on a congregational level and a personal level, where do you where do you draw the lines? Where do you say no thank you? Where do you reject out of hand? What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? What does Paul mean when he says not to be unequally yoked? How do we balance holiness? How do we balance our our longing and striving for holiness, our otherliness, our separateness? Okay? How do we balance that with our witness in this world? How do we do that? We've got to answer those questions. Let's pray.